Good morning. You Welcome once again to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz. Uh, in the Doctor's Lounge, you get to hear conversations that doctors have amongst themselves in doctor's lounges, in office buildings and hospitals from coast to coast, and we try to bring some of those conversations to you so that you can become a more empowered patient, or if you're a physician, a more empowered physician, because we seek to address both audiences on the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Uh, we are dedicated to free market solutions for the problems facing healthcare. We believe that quality of care starts with a doctor, a patient, and a conversation, and the freedom of both the doctor and the patient to choose the appropriate treatment without the interference of any third party, be that an insurer or bureaucrats or hospitals or any other uh, what I call competitive stakeholders who wish to juxtapose themselves into the doctor-patient relationship. In reality, they have absolutely no business being there, uh, and it is our life's work to bring about those appropriate changes. And on the subject of quality of care, after that conversation, we believe it's the patient that decides that quality of care after having that experience with the physician. And sometimes, and, and as I was going over this, right, we have this basic introduction we kind of do every time, and I was thinking about this last night getting ready for the show, and, and I did have a sort of a new thought occur to me thinking about this. Sometimes, and doctors will relate to this, sometimes it is that conversation itself that is therapeutic. Just the experience of being cared for, of coming in to talk to a doctor about your symptoms and, and just get some feedback. Am I okay? Is this all right? Am I uh, you know sick with a bad disease? It's going to be a problem? Or is this all kind of low-grade stuff that's going to be okay? And maybe we make a few adjustments to medications. And the first time this struck me um, was probably during the first 10 years of my career. And, and about any of the docs in the audience, I think, can relate to this, is that you'll have patients who come in and have a, a series of symptoms and they may add up some to something that, that you can treat or you can fix and sometimes maybe not. It could be just a bunch of vague stuff and you feel bad after seeing these folks three or four times because you, in, in your own mind, being your own worst critic, sometimes you think, well, gosh, I haven't really done much for them. They come in for the second visit and the third visit and the fourth visit and, and you know, things are about the same and you're treating them and trying different things, you know, ruling out stuff that's serious, of course. And uh, after three or four visits, you think, gosh, and I'm not I'm not doing very much for this this person, and you think they they must think I'm an idiot. They must not like me very much. I'm not even sure why they keep coming back because I'm not doing anything for them from a purely objective kind of standpoint because the symptoms aren't changing much. And then they start referring you other patients, and uh, you know uh, Mrs. Jones will come in because she was referred by Mr. Smith, who's one of these patients, and says, "Oh yeah, Mr. Smith thinks you're the greatest doctor in the world." And you're thinking to yourself, you know, how is that? Uh, you know, how is it that? All I do is, is talk to Mr. Smith, and next thing you know, he's referred Mrs. Jones, and you know he, he thinks his doc hung the moon. And, and it slowly occurs to you over enough years uh, the value in that conversation all by itself. Even if you haven't prescribed the right miracle drug or you know, come up with some you know, life-saving operation or something like that, that, uh, that uh, you know, somehow just these conversations – make patients feel better without any prescriptions or without any diagnostic testing. Sometimes it's, it's the conversation itself that brings the therapy. And that's where the, that's where the art of medicine comes. That's where that, that special, unique stuff uh, that, that doctors do that in a world where healthcare is, 
increasingly corporatized, homogenized, 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 objectified, uh, that the value of that is slowly becoming lost. Nobody pays for that. And it's something we need to keep in mind. So uh, I think uh, it, there's something else I read too is that the the value of healthcare, you know, the, the quality of care is often going to be indexed to something which is called the contextualization of care. That's a hard one to say. The contextualization of care. What does that mean? Uh, it means we take relatively simple measures. Right In my practice, the two most common things that I'm treating are allergies and reflux. Right, I have an ear, nose, and throat practice. So I see lots of people with allergies, of course. And what's maybe not known quite so much is that I see a lot of people with acid reflux because in addition to heartburn, that can produce throat symptoms, throat clearing, hoarseness, et cetera, et cetera. This whole thing of post-nasal drip is more often reflux than it is allergies or anything else. And what new assistants in my office will realize after uh, working uh, in my practice for a couple of months is that they say, well, gosh, Dr. K, there's not very much that you do. There's really not very much that you do. You treat allergies, and you have a, a series of options for that, and you treat reflux, and you have a s- series of options for that, and that covers about half the patients you're seeing. And it seems like no matter what the patient starts with in terms of symptoms, you always seem to boil it down to allergies or reflux after you eliminate cancer and all these other things, and that that covers a, a significant portion of your patients. So maybe your job isn't as hard as it looks. Well, that argument misses this concept of contextualization of care. And this is, and I read this and I was like, you know, it says what I've tried to say many times and haven't done very well, and I think this does a better job. Uh, contextualization of care. So it's more than just handing a patient a handout, right? We have these regulations regarding electronic medical records that say, look, we're, we need to, the EMR, the computer, the machine is supposed to prompt us to give patients literature, educational materials, right? That's a part of stage two. And this is supposed to be a good thing. And, and the regulations are obsessed with the fact that the doctor is no longer allowed to use gray matter to come up with what sort of educational materials to give out. It has to be the computer that prompts you to give out those educational materials. And that's ridiculous. And the end stage you know, iteration of that or, or, or execution of that is that we're required to sort of contract with these outside third parties to come up with all of this literature we're supposed to give patients. We can't use the handouts we wrote ourselves because the computer didn't generate that. We generated that. And that's no good. So their model is, oh, if you have acid reflux, we talk about diet things. We talk about tobacco, alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, peanut butter, and peppermint as dietary risk factors for reflux. What the bureaucrats want us to do is just, you know, shove a computer-generated handout in your hand and usher you to the door. And that fails to recognize the value of contextualization of care because it's more than just handing somebody a piece of paper that says avoid these things in your diet. You have to talk to the patient, right? It's this conversation thing. It's where true quality of care starts. Is It's not just a matter of saying, okay, avoid tobacco, alcohol, caffeine, et cetera, et cetera. You have to ask. You have to have a conversation that says, okay, Mr. Smith, do you smoke? No, you don't smoke. Do you have any alcohol? No, no, I don't have any alcohol. Are you sure? You know, not even a glass of wine at night or something? Oh, yeah, I have a glass of wine at night. 
And it's amazing how many patients will sort of miss that distinction and say, look, you know, if you ask them, do they drink and just make it a simple question, they'll say no. If you contextualize and go, well, not even a glass of wine or you know, scotch after work, oh, yeah, I have that. Oh, well, that's not really drinking, doc. That's just a little something after work every day. Well, no moral judgment there, of course, but if I'm trying to treat somebody for acid reflux, their medicine's not going to work. And unless I pick up on that, I'm not going to give them effective quality care. And if I just shove a handout in their face and show them the door and the handout says don't drink, and they're going to look at that handout, maybe, probably not, if I don't walk them through it, and they're going to go, oh, well, you know, don't drink. Oh, okay, well, I don't drink. You know, I just have that little bourbon or glass of wine at night. So contextualization of care, that's where the magic happens. And that's where you have to connect the symptoms that the patient comes in with through a conversation about habits, lifestyle, Genetics, all these sort of things that patients bring to the table but don't tell you unless you ask, and bring that into the treatments that you have available. And that's, you have to connect those dots with a conversation. And that's the quality of care piece that a checkbox doesn't do justice to. A bureaucrat reviewing your electronic medical record after the fact is not going to do justice to. So enough for my introduction uh, this morning. I, I want to I hit a couple of things. We're going to talk about um, three books, actually two and a half, because one of them is David Goldhill's book we've talked about. But I want to give you my best recommendations for the books that you ought to be reading for the first half of 2016 to really bring your fund of knowledge, not only for health IT, which is kind of my thing, of course, but for, you know, across the table in terms of what's wrong with the healthcare system and how we can fix it and, uh, and, and give you more background than we can give you in, you know, an hour once a week. Uh, before we get to that in the following segments, I do want to talk about one other thing, and this is kind of a victory lap. This is kind of something that we're pretty excited about at the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Um, I think it's fair to call this our first legislative success. Um, I don't want to call it a victory because victory is, is not the right word. Victory implies winners and losers. And at the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, we're not interested in beating somebody else. We're not interested in making anybody else lose. We're interested in successes that has everybody winning. And as I talked about the last time that I was on the air, which was, gosh, I guess almost a month ago with the holidays and everything, um, I talked about a trip to Washington, D.C. that I made with um, two other distinguished physician colleagues, uh, Dr. Marcy Zwelling and uh, Dr. Vicki Wool. Uh, and we went to the Hill and talked to uh, Representative Pete Sessions and had some very high up people from CMS and had a very interesting conversation. I won't go into the details again. We don't have time. I talked about that last time in December. Um, what I didn't know at the time of that show is what the outcome was going to be, right? We had had this conversation. There was legislation that was on the table and it was going to pass before Congress recessed for the holidays. And our thought at the time was that this was going to be a rider inserted into the spending part of the omnibus bill. What we were looking for was uh, some sort of relief uh, for meaningful use stage two requirements because as the law was written previously, if you didn't do stage two in 2015, you were going to start to get a 2% Medicare penalty starting in 2017. And stage two is a disaster. Nobody is making stage two. And again, I don't have the time to go into why. We've covered that previously. But the bottom line is stage two is completely impractical. So we were hoping after this visit that we would get some legislation that would provide us with relief. And I am proud to say that we succeeded. It was an unexpected method of success, uh, but we were looking for legislation to uh, give blanket exemption 
for the 2015 requirements. We expected it to be in the omnibus bill. It turns out it wasn't in the omnibus bill. So the Friday before Christmas, I was calling up to the Hill to the folks I know there to say, well, did we get it? Did it go in the omnibus bill? The first answer was no. Like, nope, the omnibus bill did not have your legislative relief, and we were all kind of bummed and said, that's okay, fine, we're going to live to fight another day. And then another email came in a few hours later, late that Friday afternoon. Here's an important message from Congressman Sessions. And it turns out we did get what we wanted. Uh, It came in a separate bill. It came in S-2425, the Patient Access and Medicare Protection Act which had more than just that in it, but it did include as its major feature relief from meaningful use. So physicians out there, physicians in the audience, we have relief from the 2015 requirements for meaningful use. Now, it's not a blanket exemption uh, per se. You still need to go to the CMS website, which is up but not yet functional. I know that's a little scary. That's where we're going to work next. But it's up but not yet functional. But you can go there and register for the exemption, and that's all you need to do. All you need to do is be able to type your name in the field, and you have a pulse, and you've got your, uh, you've got your exemption for 2015, which will affect your Medicare payments for 2017. So this is, a, this is a great thing. I mean, as long as CMS can execute, which is the next thing we're going to be working on and probably have another trip to D.C. this month, But we intend to push that issue a little bit farther and be sure that CMS can follow through. And again, this is just a, this is just a start. This just gives us just enough wiggle room to continue to push for more intelligent, more, dare I use the word, meaningful reforms and improvements to the meaningful use program stage three, which now gets codified into the, uh, the bill that passed last spring, which was the uh, SGR bill, MACRA. Uh, where a lot of the meaningful use stage three requirements have been embedded. And uh, hopefully this is a good first step. I would call this a success. Um, I'm del- there are some other groups that have, are claiming partial credit for this, and I don't really know the truth about that. The uh, AMA has issued a statement claiming their involvement with this, which is not mutually exclusive to our involvement. Uh, the American College of Surgeons has claimed that it's their baby. Um, that's not mutually exclusive either. But uh, in any case, uh, there has been a success. And I want to bring that back to you, the listeners, as proof that we're not crazy. We're not just trying to knock down a windmill with a big stick. Um, We're actually doing things that are making a difference. And, of course, you know what I'm going to say next, which is to roll this into my usual request for financial support. We cannot exist without your dollars. So please go to the website, www.docsforpatientcare.org. There is a webpage there to contribute small amounts or large amount. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too large. But we cannot continue to do this work either at the federal level like I'm kind of settling into or at the state level where some of the other board members are settling into. We have a variety of things that are going on and we need your financial support. Coming up, we're going to talk about books. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. We are back for segment two. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Today's meat of the conversation for the next three segments will be to talk about some books. Uh, I did a little bit of reading over the break and came across a couple of books that I think are very noteworthy and very worthwhile of your time to read and review. One of them has to do with health information technology directly. Another one has to do with more of a very extended sort of uh, dissertation on what's wrong with the healthcare system. The unique thing is it's embedded as a novel. It's written as nonfiction as opposed to fiction, and we'll get into why that's true. And then as a, sort of a contextual exercise, I'm going to bring those two books into context with David Goldhill's book, which we have talked about in the past, Catastrophic Care, Why you, Everything You Think You Know About Healthcare is Wrong. And we've talked about that book extensively. We've had David Goldhill as a guest on the show at least once, and I think maybe Hal had him another time last year. So I'm not going to put a whole lot of time into that because we've discussed it previously, except to use his book as sort of historical context or, or you know, other kind of context for the other two books. Um, before we get started on that, I'm going to throw in one little piece of news. And I heard this uh, literally on terrestrial radio coming into the studio uh, this morning, less than 30 minutes ago, on, uh, on talk radio in Atlanta here, um, which has to do with... Um, wearable technology. Right? We've talked about wearable technology before, right? We all know about Fitbits and Apple Watches and Microsoft Band and all of these other uh, Garmin, all these other manufacturers who've decided to put an entire computer on your wrist, uh, mainly as a fitness tracker and also as a smartwatch function, which is to bring some of your cell phone functions down to the wrist so you can leave your cell phone in your briefcase or purse. But these things have a medical component, right? And one of those medical components uh, that is really at the cutting edge is heart rate sensors that don't require a big chest strap around your chest near your heart to measure your heart rate. And people like to measure their heart rate with exercise. It's a, obviously a measure of energy output or calorie consumption. And so people like to have that. And there's always been sort of a line in the sand, if you will, at least with the FDA, in terms of the regulation of medical devices to say, look, you can report on 
vital signs, but you cannot interpret vital signs because once you start interpreting vital signs, you are now giving medical advice. That now comes under a, a much more tightly restricted environment. And so the manufacturers thought they were safe by simply saying, here's your data. Here's your heart rate. You know, what, and, and leaving it at that and leaving you to interpret that so that they don't have the liability. Well, apparently, based on this latest headline, that's not enough because Fitbit is now getting hit with a what was described on the air this morning coming in as a class action lawsuit because their heart rate monitors are not reporting heart rate accurately during exercise. Now, the report was very brief. I haven't had it. You know, I learned about it less than 30 minutes ago, so I don't have the uh, particulars. Maybe we'll try to bring that next time. But anytime you start getting into medical stuff, as careful as you're trying to be, there is always a liability and always the potential that you're going to get sued if you even tip your toe in the water. So here we are. Uh, a very interesting situation. So I'll try to report on that next time that I'm here. Uh, the lawsuit against Fitbit because their heart rate monitors are not accurately reporting heart rate during exercise. So we'll follow up on that in future shows. So now let's get to the meat of the thing, which is three books uh, that I want to talk about. Two new ones and for contextual uh, interpretation, a book we talked about last year. So the first book I want to talk to you about is called... The Digital Doctor, write this down. I want you to read this book. It's called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Written by Dr. Robert Wachter, who is an internist at University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Um, he was a prominent guy before this book came out. He was voted by Modern Healthcare last year as the most influential physician executive. He's written at least a half a dozen books before this book came out. Uh, he is a patient safety expert. He's a health IT expert, and I hope to have him on the show at some point during this calendar year, hopefully during the first half of the calendar year. But the best way I could summarize this book is that this is the book that I always hoped that I would get a chance to write. Um, he beat me to it, but I have to say that he wrote it way better than I could have with far more depth and far more uh, detail. And I can't tell you the number of you know aha moments that I had reading this book and saying, that's what I would have said, or that's what I wish I would have said, uh, in so many places. And uh, there's just a lot of, I'm going to give you some highlights from the book and, and try to you know, summarize it a little bit, but clearly what I want you to do is get this book and read it from, from cover to cover. So we're just going to kind of skip around through the book and talk about some things. But think about this concept. You know, Ever since the invention, if you will, of the stethoscope hundreds of years ago, um, we have become more and more distant from our patients because of devices and technology. And even the stethoscope takes you from putting the ear to the patient's chest, which was an issue for obvious reasons, but you know, now instead of being ear to the patient's chest, now we're 18 inches or two feet away with a stethoscope, more distance. Right Now we largely replace auscultation of the chest with a stethoscope with echocardiograms or percentine thallium studies or all these sort of invasive tests that uh, that cardiologists use. And I'm not saying they're bad. They're, they're a bad thing. Obviously, they're a good thing and they save lives and they give insights that stethoscopes and putting your ear to the chest can't give you. But we have to recognize the side effect, which is that every time we add a layer of technology, we increase distance between ourselves and the patient. And Wachter talks about another author, Abraham Vergase, who is in the UK, I think, who brought out a concept called the eye patient. Uh, 
and this just says it so well. I mean, think about this, especially if you're a doc, but I want you to think about this if you're a patient too, because obviously it's important in that context. What is the eye patient? The eye patient is everything about that patient except the patient itself. It's the x-ray images. It's the lab values. It's the speech pathology notes. It's, uh, it's the other doctor's notes. It's all the stuff that you can read about a patient before you ever meet them, which is a lot of times what we do. We review the records first. If they're a complicated patient and they come into the office or you see them in the ER and they've got a, a pile of stuff that's already been done, you read the workup first and you get this cognitive map in your mind of the eye patient, right? Sounds like an iPhone or an iPad. This is the eye patient, right? This is the electronic version of the patient, which has everything about the patient except the patient itself, the patient him or herself, right? There's no heart and soul. There's no conversation. There's no getting to know them. It's all about the data. And the health IT people love this, right? They want data-driven care. They have big data. They are still convinced that all you have to do is, you know, pile up enough data about enough patients in a big database and push some magic button that runs some magic software that's going to make their care better all in one swell foop, and that's, that's not going to happen. Um, and Verghese makes the point, you know, discussed by Wachter in his book, that the eye patient gets great care. Right? The virtual patient, the eye patient gets great care. The real patient cares not nearly as good. And there is a difference. So what else does this book talk about? The, the other thing that really, and this will resonate more with docs than the patients, and this is, this is another example in the book where I just read this and went, oh my gosh, he is so right. And it has to do with the cultural change in hospitals and medical centers that has happened because of cultural and technological changes in the radiology department. Now, if you're a patient, bear with me. If you're not a doc, please bear with me. The physicians will get this immediately. But when you were in training, you would go and do morning rounds on your patients in the hospital. And the next thing that you did was go to radiology and look at all of the x-rays that had been done on your patients the day before, or your new admissions from the day before, or overnight from the ER, and you would look at those pictures with a wise, intelligent, teaching radiologist. Even if you had already seen the report, even if you had already looked at the images, you would go to the radiology department, and this was back in the old days where there was no PAC system, there was no digital images. They had these huge light boxes with all of the x-rays on conveyor belts and you would step on a pedal and this huge mechanical monster of a conveyor belt would scroll through all of these x-rays which at the time again weren't electronic they were on big pieces of plastic big pieces of film and so it required this huge monstrosity to keep all these things filed in a way that you could view them easily and it was teaching rounds so not only would you hear about your own patients you'd hear about all the patients on the service and it was a tremendous cultural coming together. It was like a watering hole. It was like the place where everybody went in the mid-morning to learn about stuff. Huge teaching experience. Well, what happened to that? Well, with the digital age, it had to happen. And I'm not saying it shouldn't have happened, but in the digital age, all the x-rays got put online. They, they got put in a computer. All of these big boxes with these giant light boxes, with huge pieces of film, all kind of disappeared. And the other thing that disappeared is that nobody went to radiology anymore. Because why should you? Right? You can look at films anywhere. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that this is like any other technology 
that when cultural, when technological changes come, there are going to be unforeseen, unintended consequences. And when that happens, you may have bad side effects. I think this is a bad side effect. I mean, I wouldn't go back to what it was, but there's a huge teaching tool that's lost, that has been lost. And I'm sure the docs relate to this. Patients, just bear with me. But that's that's kind of how that's gone. Again, it, it's a much more efficient system. Uh, it's forced radiologists to work much harder because the uh, third-party payers now have decreased the value of reading a scan. So, yeah, the good news is you can look at 10 x-rays in the time it used to take you to look at two, but the bottom line is you get paid only a fifth as much now. So you may be seeing five times as many. You only get paid 20% as much in the end. You're getting paid the same, but cognitively you've worked much harder because you've had to interpret and dictate 10 reports instead of two. And so as a result, radiologists are working much harder. You know, they're under competition from, you know, remote readers that are, you know, on the other side of the world. The, you know, these images get beamed all over the place. And so it's completely changed the field of radiology in many good ways, but some bad ways as well. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. We are back. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host. Dr. Mike Karuchak, thank you very much for being with us today and sticking with us through the entirety of the show. We're going to continue with a lot of good red meat here, a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Uh, we're talking about required reading, in my opinion. This is your course syllabus for the spring semester of 2016 on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We are talking about two new books today and one older book or one book we've talked about before for uh, contextual sort of uh, interpretation. Uh, we're talking about The Digital Doctor. This is a book called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Information Age by Dr. Robert Wachter, who's out at UCSF. So we were sort of talking about 
changes to the radiology department. We talked about that. Changes in how uh, we regard patients, right? Is a patient a living, breathing um, entity with hopes and dreams and feelings? Or is a patient just a bunch of lab tests and, and bits and bytes and digital data? Well, they're actually both in this age, right? We have something called the eye patient which is discussed in the book, which is all of the lab results and things. And when you look at all that, you can easily succumb to the illusion that you know this patient already, only because you've looked at all their tests and all their scores and all their labs, uh, when in reality you don't know very much. You, I mean, not that you don't need to know that, but you really haven't started to evaluate their patient until you've shaken their hand, you've looked them in the eye, and you've done the things that we talked about at the top of the show about doctor, patient, conversation, freedom of choice, patient judges your quality of care. Until you've done that, all this eye patient stuff is of, to say the least, limited value. So let's go into uh, a couple of other things he talks about, some of the side effects of technology. And, and, and we've talked about this piece before, um, which is that if you have a computer in the exam room, at least in this relatively primitive day and age with information technology and healthcare, that it's very easy, it's almost impossible to avoid that if you're the only one in the room and it's just the doctor and the patient and there's no assistant running the computer, uh, you cannot interact with a patient and interact with a computer at the same time. That doesn't work. What happens? Well, the doc hides behind his or her laptop, talks to the patient with the computer between the two of you. You ask a question, patient gives an answer, you type something, right? There's no eye contact, right? You're staring at the screen and you're, you're uh, asking the patient questions without looking at them, without touching them, and that creates a big problem. And, and Walker goes into a little bit of detail about the value of eye contact. And we all understand that. The docs get that, and I think you know the rest of you who aren't docs who have been patients get that. that I mean, you need to have eye-to-eye contact with the doctor, and it turns out there's some studies that support that, and this is kind of funny, but it has to do with cereal boxes, right? They used Trix cereal, right? T-R-I-X, Trix cereal. That's the fruity cereal. It's got the bunny rabbit on the box in the front. And it turns out that people like Trix cereal better when the picture of the rabbit is looking straight out and making eye contact with the person who's going to eat the cereal. Right, you got one tricks box with a rabbit looking right at you. You got another tricks box with a rabbit looking somewhere else, and it turns out that patients rate the cereal as tasting better when the rabbit on the side of the box is looking at them as opposed to not looking at them. So, interesting stuff that is going on. Um, there is a he, he draws a contrast between uh, a piece of art. Uh, that, that shows a child dying of tuberculosis and the doctor just holding his hand or looking at him with his hand on his chin studying this dying child. And uh, the, uh, the painting is from the late 19th century. There was no cure for tuberculosis back then. All this doctor was doing was holding this child's hand and supporting the parents as the child slowly died. Obviously a very sad story. But it shows the role of the doctor in that age back then before we had stuff to do. And yet, even back then, doctors were revered. Healers were revered. Even though there was hardly anything that we were doing to actually actually make patients better. Again, circles back to the whole conversation concept. Conversation, eye contact, all these things that, you know, in the relative vacuum of a, of a internet radio show or a podcast sounds obvious, 
But you would not believe, and again, the docs in the audience will get this immediately, you would not believe how hard that is in this day and age with so many distractions and so many requirements and so many boxes to check and so many HIPAA compliance rules to, to abide by that good old-fashioned medicine finishes last. And that's a big problem. And it's very interesting the way they put this. They contrast this painting with the doctor holding the child's hand dying of tuberculosis with a more modern piece of art, which is a child's crayon drawing of her doctor visit. In this child's modern crayon drawing of the doctor visit, the doctor is nowhere near the child patients, the, the, the child who's a patient. Guess where the doctor is? Off in the corner, facing the computer. And we all know the value of child's drawings, right? When children, when, when children pick up a crayon and start drawing something on a piece of paper, very often they're drawing a reflection of their world. And we, in other contexts, you know, we understand the meaning of that. But it's very interesting that this young child drew her doctor as nowhere near her. The doctor was off in the corner tapping on the computer. So a very stark contrast you know, uh, painted in the book about that stuff. But the best part, I think, one of the best parts of this book, The Digital Doctor, by Robert Wachter out in UCSF, is his breakdown of great length. And this is probably going to take the rest of the show to walk through. His breakdown, great length, of how an error occurred at his hospital, at UCSF Medical Center in the pediatric wing, and you've heard about this in the news before. It's been a while and you may have forgotten, but there was a story about a pediatric patient, 16 years old, who was given a 40-fold overdose of an antibiotic. Right? It was Bactrim, Septra, one of the basic ones. Um, that somehow this system, this IT system, allowed an order to go through for over 6,000 milligrams of Bactrim that made it past the human doctor, the human pharmacist, the human nurse, and even the human patient who at age 16 who, was, who has a chronic disease and is uh, you know, a savvy, experienced patient even at age 16. Somehow, this got through. And if you don't know the whole story, it's easy to blame somebody, right? It's easy to blame the nurse and say, well, good God, how could the nurse give him 39 Bactrim pills? I mean, you know, what, what dummy would do that? Well... This breakdown really shows how that happened and how the interaction of humans and machines at multiple levels leads to that mistake and that there's really nobody that you can point a finger at and say, well, obviously it was their fault. They screwed up. They were negligent. It was this interaction between humans and machines which is impossible to quantify, describe, or predict before it actually happens. So let's begin at the beginning, right? He, he talks about this problem as, as the holes lining up in Swiss cheese, right? That every layer of Swiss cheese and a stack of slices of Swiss cheese has holes in it, and, you know, each hole is a, is a weakness in a layer of protection, and if you get all those holes to line up so you can see all the way through the slices of Swiss cheese from one end to the other, then you have a catastrophe. Uh, I'm not as much a fan as that. I like the daisy chain concept better, which says that one event leads to another, leads to another. And if any one of those events hadn't occurred, the chain would be broken and the adverse event never would have occurred. But regardless of what metaphor you use, here's what happened. The first mistake in UCSF's EMR system actually was probably years before the event actually occurred. And it's when their Epic system was installed. 
And when that happens, you have to configure the system, right? This is not like loading Windows onto your computer and clicking I agree to the terms and conditions and poof, your desktop comes up. There's a lot of configurations. There's a lot of things that you need to do. One of those things or several of those things have to do with the pharmacy department, with medications, with drug dosing. So they had one parameter is, is do you want to set absolute limits on drugs, right? The drug databases that come with these systems that get updated periodically will have sort of a maximum allowable dose, meaning if you write above that dose, the system won't even let you put that number in. Well, they chose to override that, turn it off. Why? Because they have a lot of patients on research protocols, and those protocols might involve dosing of drugs that's above the generally accepted limits. So they said, look, we're not going to put that up there because we want folks to be able to order research doses of drugs through the system. And so they chose, again, through appropriate methods, committees, you know, an advance consideration of this ahead of time. They thought about it ahead of time. And they said, look, we know from prior experience or, or from other medical centers prior experience, we're not going to set those dose limits because we got too many alerts already. Um, they also had a parameter for weight-based dosing. You know, at what weight for a child do you want weight-based dosing to kick in? So instead of just grabbing an adult dose, you actually have to do the milligram per kilogram calculation and say, okay, if you weigh you know, 40 kilograms or 39 kilograms and your drug is 5 milligrams per kilogram, you do the math and come up with the dose. So they decided to threat dose that threshold at 40 kilograms, about 88 pounds, probably about the right place, I would say, that below that weight, you've got to put milligrams per kilogram. But if you do that, then you've got to decide, well, if you come up with a milligram per kilogram dose and you're giving a pill that's already got a fixed dose, which pill do you pick? And so they decided that if there is a greater a variance between the pill dose, right, let's say the pill's available in 250 milligrams, you do the weight-based calculation and it's 275 milligrams, well, what do you want to do? You want to use the 250 you want to go up to the 500? Well, probably the 250, but again, they're trying to put protocols in place. So they said if there's a if the pill, if your nearest pill dose is greater than 5% away from the weight-based drug calculation, that has to go back to the doctor for verification. Right? All this stuff sounds pretty benign, and again, they were the, the the goal here was noble. They were trying to reduce the number of alerts because it's it's it stands that even in their system Doctors still get, when they're using in their EMR, their doctors get 17,000 alerts per month. Now think about that. You know, the docs have to close the ignore box 17,000 times, and that's what happens. Is that there's this, there's this underground sort of, you know, rule of the jungle among residents and interns that says, look, the alerts, there are no alerts here that are any good. All the alerts are BS, so as soon as you see an alert box, just close it down. Right? That's sort of the culturally accepted below the radar sort of thing that happens. So you've got a system set up before it goes live. Now, let's go fast forward to the day that this patient, the 16-year-old, was admitted. Right When people get admitted, they go through what's called the medication reconciliation. Right, This is where they um, go through their home medication list and enter all those medications in their medication list for their hospital admission if it's medically appropriate. So this patient was on Bactrim, you know, on this antibiotic before they came in the hospital, and the decision was made to continue that antibiotic while they're in the hospital. And we'll get into the nuts and bolts of exactly what happened 
to cause this patient to get a 40-fold overdose of a drug they were already taking at home when we come back for the next segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We are back. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you for sticking with us through the last segment of the show. we still got a lot of red meat to sink into. And uh, we are talking about uh, a book called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawns of, of Medicine's Computer Age by Dr. Robert Wachter, who is in Memphis. No, I'm sorry. He's at UCSF, uh, UCSF Medical Center. And uh, we were talking about how it is that in, a, in an institution – a large academic teaching institution with a state-of-the-art electronic medical records and order administration and pharmacy delivery system, a hospital that is consistently rated as one of the top ten in the country by U.S. News. How could a, an institution with that kind of reputation and that kind of resources you know, have a mistake slide through multiple levels of safety protection and, and bring a 40-fold overdose of a commonly used antibiotic to a 16-year-old pediatric patient, we were kind of going through those steps. So the first part was the hospital can, uh, you know, can configure their EMR system before go live with the idea of of minimizing all of these alerts that cause alert fatigue, and they did the best they could. We then have a doc who admits a patient who's on a regular dose of Bactrim, which includes 160 milligrams of of uh, trimethoprim per pill so his dose is 160 we know that he's been on it it's well established the child knows he's taken one pill per day and that should be simple right in a paper chart you write Bactrim DS one pill twice a day simple 
in the paper age. Now, there were weaknesses there, and the book goes into that. The paper age, it was far from perfect, and there were plenty of medication mistakes there, and that's well documented. But at least in terms of entering the order, that part was simple on paper. You just write down what you want. Well, in an EMR system, it's not that simple because this patient was 38 kilograms, right? Has a chronic disease, even though he's 16, he's very tiny and very frail and very light. So he went, he weighs less than 40 kilograms. That means in their computerized physician order entry system, they have to enter that drug as a milligram per kilogram dose. So they take a simple problem and make it a complex problem. I just can't write down what I want. I can't write Bactrim one pill twice a day or Bactrim DS, double strength, one pill twice a day. Right? Doctors know that order, and we've all written it a million times. It's very straightforward when you got a pen and paper. When you're in a, in, in a computer, it's not straightforward. They had to do the milligram per kilogram. Well, what's the milligram per kilogram for Bactrim? Well, if you want the double strength, which everybody does, it's five milligrams per kilogram. So you click a box that says five milligrams per kilogram. The patient's weight's already in the system. It crunches the numbers and says that the exact dose of Bactrim is supposed to be 193 milligrams. Problem is there ain't no 193 milligram pill. It's a 160 milligram pill. So the system pops up and says, all I got's a 160. Is that okay? Hit yes. Still not so bad, right? Except for the next step is the pharmacist. Now, in their system, like all systems, the pharmacist has to review every drug order and sign off on it. That's a good thing, right? That's human intervention. I'm all for that. The problem is, is that because the difference between 160 milligrams, which is the pill, and 193 milligrams, which is the calculated dose based on weight, are off by more than 5%. If that happens, the pharmacist has to ping the order back to the doctor to verify that that's what they want. Right, 193 versus 160. Do you really want 160? So the pharmacist messages the doc, and I don't know how that happened. I'm sure it was HIPAA compliant. But it was an, an error because the message going back from the pharmacist to the doctor was, you know, for this patient, please verify that you want 160. I have to ask you. I know that's what you want, but I have to ask you that because it's the policy that was decided by bureaucrats in a room or administrators in a room somewhere months or years before with good intentions. So the patient, the doctor, I'm sorry, has to go back into the pharmacy order screen and type 160. Here's the problem. The window that they typed 160 was in milligrams per kilogram. It was a dose-weighted window. And so the dose got changed to 160 milligrams per kilogram. We're supposed to be five. And that created the 40-fold overdose error. You think, well, okay, surely the God, the pharmacist would have caught that when it came back through. Well, you know, the problem is the pharmacist blew off the alert. Why? They get 17,000 alerts per month. So we have this situation where the combination of technology and policy is that that happened. And remember, the interesting thing is that the exact dose is 6,160 milligrams. Uh, and, and inside that is 160, right? The last three digits of 6,160 is 160. So if you just scan the screen and see a 160, you think, okay, that's good. Pharmacist signed off. All right, so then what happens? Well, 
you think at that point in the vacuum of you know 2020 hindsight, you think, well, how could that happen? Pharmacists totally screwed up. Well, yeah, in retrospect, I guess you could say that. But you know, if you look at the data on alerts in a major medical center, what do you find? You find that in the UCSF Medical Center, right, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, where this error occurred, let's look at their ICU. Right, this is all coming from the book. Uh, in the ICU, they have 66 beds. Those 66 beds generate 400,000 audible alarms per month. 400,000. I mean, I don't know how many alarms per second that is, but it's a whole heck of a lot of alarms. The alarms are going off constantly. There's no way you can honor every single alarm and every single alert. So how about this, David? David's on the board here this morning. How about this? If you add in the non-audible alerts, right, that's just a flashing light without, you know, a, without an audible alarm, that number goes from 400,000 to 2.5 million alerts in a 66-bed ICU per month. 2.5 million alerts. Now, you're telling me in an environment that has that many alerts, that one pharmacist with one alert that was related to the verification of an order gets missed? Of course it does. It's going to happen at some point. Because all the alerts look the same. And that's a, that's a beautiful analysis that Wachter uses in this book. And I think it's one of the reasons that, uh, that, that you need to go back and read this because he writes it better than I can talk about it. Uh, and that is to look at the very nature of how alerts work. And what he does is go to an environment that's been very, very successful with alerts, and that is a commercial aircraft cockpit, right? An airplane's a complex piece of machinery. There's little deviations in exactly what happens on an airplane all the time. 99.999% of those are nothing, one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of one percent of those are significant and a pilot needs to know. So what did they do? They stratify the alerts, right? The, the biggest alert is when the airplane is about to do something called a stall, and that's where the lights are flashing, the bells are ringing, they even make the control stick on the airplane shake that says, look, you, this, that is the most in-your-face alarm because if you don't react to it within a few seconds, the airplane's going to fall out of the sky, Right now, one level down from that are alarms that are significant but aren't that vital. The the intensity of the alert is less. You may see a red light, but it ain't going to shake the stick. And that and you see where this is going. The spectrum is down to stuff that's you know almost trivial. That's yeah, you need to know about it, but it's no big deal. You can still finish the trip and land. And it's you know it's it's things like the window heaters and little stuff like that. There are some things that don't even get alarms. So, but the point is, he interviews um, Captain Scully, right? The guy who who landed the airplane in the Hudson River, interviews him, and he talks about it. And then he goes to a seven seventy seven flight simulator, and you get to see that there's a big difference between trivial alarms and big alarms, and you know they have gone to great lengths, and they've done this by working with the pilots, by the way, something that's missing in health IT. Nobody's working with the doctors to say, look. Here's what we want to know about quickly. Here's what we need to know about not as quickly. Here's what we need to know about within a few seconds. And they come up with a very sophisticated design of stratified alarms. In healthcare, that's completely missing. Right? The alarm that sounds for a cardiac arrest doesn't sound that different than the alarm that sounds because the IV is clogged 
or the alarm that sounds because the patient moved and you know the EKG got an extra you know electromechanical squiggle in it because the patient rolled over in bed. They all look the same. When they all look the same, you're going to ignore all of them. And then when one real alarm comes through to that pharmacist, who by the way is working in this little cubicle, this room with people running around like you know bouncing off the walls like uh, you know uh, 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 ping pong balls. And uh, you can't, you know, you can't get work done and maintain that level of attention multitasking at that level. So you think, okay, fine, it got out of the pharmacy. Then what happens? Well, then the robot, right, who has no idea what the dose is supposed to be, right? It's a robot goes and pulls forty Septra pills, puts them in peel packs, puts them on a ring, and drops it in a bin somewhere where a runner picks it up and delivers it to the ward. So obviously the runner doesn't know what they have. So now we're down to the nurse and the patient. Well, it turns out that the nurse was doing this, very competent nurse, very well-trained nurse, well-respected, well-liked. But that day she was a floater. Right? Now what's a floater? Well, the doctors know what that is. We explain that. A floater is means you're working on a ward where you don't normally work. You're substituting for somebody who's sick or something like that. So you're in an unfamiliar environment. That means the patients have diagnoses you're not used to working with. You don't know where anything is. It's a huge stress to be placed in an environment like that and be responsible for people when you don't know the surroundings. Um, and so she gets this thing of, you know, 39 Batram pills, and it occurs to her, hmm, that's odd. Um, but, you know, again... People say, oh, these are you know patients on this ward or on research protocols, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, the doctor's not readily available to ask, right? She can't find the doctor and just say, hey, what do you think of this? You know, it used to be in the old days that the doctors were on the wards, right? The residents were on the wards. The, 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 the interns were on the wards. They're not on the wards anymore. You know why? Because they're all at their computers doing stuff. Because that's where the whole world tells them they're supposed to be. So the doc's not available. And she doesn't have the phone number at her fingertips because it's a doc she's not used to working with. So what happens? Well, she asks the patient, says, what do you think? The patient looks and says, well, yeah, I'm probably on a research protocol. So the patient got 39 pills. Five hours later had a seizure. Luckily survived. But my goodness, it's amazing how it happens. We are at the end of the show. We'll cover the other book next time. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.